number two of Sports Talk begins with Jimmy Hyams. I'm John Wilkerson. Always look forward for the opportunity to get up to date with Vince's Views, which is the blog you can find on 991thesportsanimal.com, uh, as well as Vincenzo's Views, the podcast you should tune in for to each week. And tomorrow night, it'll be in the cage, as it'll be MMA Radio with Vince Ferrara. Uh, on 99.1, the sports animal. Vince, how are you? I'm good, guys. How are you guys doing? Doing quite well. And tell me, do you have any idea where this secluded island is that Dana White has secured? Uh, I do. Um, it, it's uh, it's going to be out in California. I I don't know the – haven't been there or anything, but – uh, it's one of the things that we'll talk about uh, on on the show tomorrow. Ovin St. Peru is not on that card, but he's fighting the week after. He's going to join us, uh, and we're actually going to ask him about what that's been like to hear about all these secret uh, locations and stuff. I don't. The fighters don't know either. I don't think he's going to know uh, the specifics of it, but. There's an island, and then there's a fighting location. So uh, the, it's been talked about, but I think it's in California. Couldn't tell you geographically what part of the state it's in. I just uh, have heard the name of it. So, um, so yeah, it, um, it's one that it's a little area, it sounds like, that has hosted uh, MMA fights in the past. But I don't know the specifics of it, and Dana White is keeping it very close to the vest because he doesn't want anything to impact that show. And he's still securing the island that he's apparently close to <laughs> cutting a deal with. And that's a whole nother issue. That's to get international fighters in to the U S so he, he can keep them fighting also in the weeks to come. So it's kind of a, from the outside, it's kind of a confusing deal, but yeah, it's out in California. Well, if he's going to use an island in California, he's got to do Alcatraz, right? <laughs> <laughs> Maybe that's where it'll end up. I mean, that's stuck up there, but who does? <laughs> Man. Well, Vince, you put together, a, a, as we turn our attention to Tennessee football, and you have a question or comment for Vince as he joins us on the Stanley Fence and Gates Hotline. Join the conversation, 656-9900, star 990 is free for AT&T and U.S. Cellular customers. The toll-free number, 1-866-656-9900. You did a deep dive in stat comparisons between Tennessee in 2017 versus 2019. What stood out? What jumped off the page when you put all that together? Well, it's one that I, I did from 2017 to 2018, and you can see – Tennessee improving statistically in some areas from the year before, but you know the win total was only uh, one extra game from the final Butch Jones season to the first of Jeremy Pruitt. So, you know those stats really I don't think carry quite as many, quite as as much value because there were still so many moving parts and variables and roster turnover and things like that. But then when I backed up and, and put 2019 alongside of it, then I think you can start to get a feel for the pattern of development with this team. And th the stats aren't the be-all, end-all. I know some people roll their eyes at stats. It's not the be-all, end-all. It's backing up what we saw with the wins, and obviously Tennessee had the improvement in wins, 
And then also the eye test. We could see Tennessee doing things better during that six-game winning streak. The tackling, the ability to, to close games out, um, the ability to bounce back from bad plays and bad stretches. Those are all things that they had really struggled prior to that point in the Jeremy Pruitt uh, in Jeremy Pruitt's tenure. But we saw them improve in those areas. You saw them be able to make improvements at the line of scrimmage. So what I wanted to do is see if the numbers, if the stats backed up the eye test and the wins. And in large part, with just about half of those statistical categories showing a consecutive year improvement, I think a lot of those stats do because a lot of them are at the line of scrimmage, like the tackles for loss margin. Jimmy, we, how much did we talk about that going into the season? The, both of us brought it up and talked about mm-hmm. it. The Tennessee, in the last few years, or for the last few years, had been overmatched in terms of the line of scrimmage. They'd give up a lot of tackles for loss. They didn't generate enough of them. Minus 27 in Butch Jones' final year. Minus 24 in Pruitt's first year. And we said going into the year, if they were somewhere around uh, even, if they'd split and just have right right about zero or even be on the positive side, there's a good chance Tennessee was going to have a good season. And Tennessee finished at plus two in that category from minus 24 the year before. That is indicative of the line of scrimmage. The sacks for and the sacks against, you see the consecutive year big jumps and improvements. And there was a number of things that Tennessee did that they hadn't done in a long time. Uh, they're, the rush defense, giving up 1,826 rush yards. Two years ago it was at over 3,000 yards rushing, which is just insane. But the 1826 was the fewest allowed since 2008. And there were just other, other stats and numbers that you had to go back a number of years for the last time Tennessee was that good. The stats, just looking through the, the record books, excuse me, the sacks, looking through the record books, the 34 sacks by Tennessee last year was a jump from 25 last year, 22 the year before, the 34 was tied for 10th most all time with 2001. Um, and so you, there's just a number of things that really stood out, and a lot of them were at the line of scrimmage. And that's where you saw the improvement. That's what's, for a lot of fans, that's what's exciting about this year's team is that you now, for the first time in quite a while, that's an area where fans can feel much more comfortable that that's a good foundation for this team, and then they can build off of it with quarterback and replacing the guys from last year. But uh, it um, it did back up in a lot of ways to me the eye test and the wins that they Tennessee has produced under Pruitt in his first couple of years. Vince, there were several numbers that I thought were very revealing, but among them, the one that, that hit me, and you touched on it, it's the rushing yards. They gave up 251 rushing yards per game two years ago, or 2017, and then last year only 141. Not only mm-hmm. is that 110 yards per game better, but I didn't think that Tennessee had extraordinary talent on the defensive line this past year, which I think says maybe a couple of things. One, 
Uh, they did a really nice job with their coaching and their scheme with those players. And secondly, maybe it's a, a compliment to the, the linebackers, Batuli and Henry To'o To'o. But I thought those run defensive numbers were, were about as eye-popping as any of the stats that you showed. Yeah, I agree with you. And I do think it was a combination of those things that you mentioned, the scheme and also the linebackers. Now, I would also point to the depth. You know, there were some times where Tennessee would go to their second-team D-line at the on the back end of a drive, and they'd hold teams out of the, the, the end zone. Uh, I don't think there was a massive drop-off from the guys, whether Aubrey Solomon was starting or when Greg Emerson would start or Karat Garland. There was a lot of different guys that got starts on that D-line, and a lot of them, they got playing time. And we hadn't seen that in recent years at Tennessee. Remember the year before? It was Phillips and Tuttle uh, and those guys that were were handling a majority of the plays on the D-line, the snaps on the D-line. And last year there was a lot more by committee. So I I do think all those things were in play. And then in terms of the rush defense, the yards per carry, that was way down from two years ago. It was two years ago it was 5.4 per carry. Now they last year they held teams down to three point seven. So um, I think it's I think there's a number of things that do point to the development. Now you have to wonder. All right, if you if it's coaching, how much of that was Pruitt? How much of that was Tracy Rocker? And then the same with the linebackers. Is that just something anyone else can any other position coach is going to be able to slide in and and keep that? development and that coaching going because it's coming from your head coach and in a foundation or is that something that could potentially slide back with younger coaches that that are new onto the staff so that's an unknown but i i do think they've had a number of those very impressive back-to-back years of improvement in a lot of areas another big statistical difference the passing yards 20 it's almost 800 yards more in 2019 versus 2017, but uh, frankly, I would say that's more of an indictment on what happened in 2017 because I don't think the passing game was where it needed to be in 2019. But it, it, it again, a, a significant improvement. But I think that just shows how bad they were two years ago. Yeah, and last year, you know, excuse me, 2000 and 2018. They weren't great either. Right. Uh, so they've improved a little bit. But, yes, it, it does show how much they struggled in that area. And, look, Tennessee was able to do that and be better in the past game while still having improvement in the run game as well. Sometimes maybe you give up one area to just rely on your strengths. Tennessee was improved almost across the board in, in all the passing categories and the rushing categories, not out of this world in terms of the run game. And clearly they were coming from a long way two years ago when the whole offense was bad. They were only averaging 3.4 yards per carry two years ago and la- and two year- and then uh, 3.7 in 2018 and last year improved to 4.1. I think that's indicative of Eric Gray coming uh, bursting onto the scene and then ob- obviously the offensive line having a little bit more stability and being – a, a little bit more adequate. They certainly have room to improve. I had some youth, but I think it was more encouraging and more and more talent in that area also. So 
and and when you're improved in both areas, I think you're it, it helps in terms of the results to not have to be one dimensional. That's one thing with Tennessee that I don't think that is was a plus for them was that they weren't just one dimensional, all passing and all running or all running. They were uh, fairly balanced overall. That's Vince Ferrara with Jimmy Hyams. I'm John Wilkerson. Vince joining us on the Stanley Fence and Gates Hotline. We'll get a break. More with Vince coming up as you listen to Sports Talk on 99.1, the sports animal. We work all day under a neon Budweiser sign. Yeah, it's a really cool thing. From the Budweiser studios of Cumulus Broadcasting, we are Sports Radio WNML. And our guest, Vince Ferrara, as he joins us on the Stanley Fence and Gates Hotline. And Vince, as you uh, continue to work through the stat comparison, Tennessee 2019 versus the uh, football team in 2017, you had a uh, couple, two, three other things you wanted to toss out there? (laughs) Yeah, we were talking about the tackles for loss margin between offense and defense where Tennessee came out on a positive at a plus two, improved from minus 24 last year. Well, the total tackles for loss defensively for Tennessee was 71. And looking through the record books, that's tied for the fifth most all-time at Tennessee. And and that was with the 2006 season. So that was one that caught my eye, that uh, that how high that tackle for loss number was. And, you know, we talked about the improvement on the defensive line and then also the linebackers with, Batuli and Henry Toto, but then also I think that speaks to a little bit of the scheme and what we were talking about in those uh, those blitzes and the because Tennessee was more uh, adequate and capable on the defensive line, I think it allowed uh, Jeremy Pruitt and Derek Ansley to do more things with different kind of blitzes and coverages and sending pressures from a lot of different areas. I mean, guys like Sean Schamberger who had multiple sacks and a number of guys in the secondary had sacks. Tennessee, in fact, had 16 different players last year that had a, a half a sack at least or more that shared in a sack. 16 different players. That's pretty impressive. And then the, the interception total. Tennessee had 15 uh, interceptions. That's the most since 2014. The 19 turnovers gained out of those. Excuse me, out of those 12, uh, out of the the 19 turnovers, 12 different players either had an interception or a fumble recovery. Nobody on the Tennessee defense had both an interception and a fumble recovery. You had different guys do that. Um, the overall record: Tennessee had a three-game win improvement from a season ago. That's the first three-win or more jump from year to year for Tennessee since 2005 to 2006, where that team went from five wins to nine wins from 05 to 06. So I thought that was noteworthy as well. And um, just a a lot more. I can keep going. I don't want to take the whole time talking about the numbers because there's a lot of them. But in there, the point is, is there's – the two-year, the three years of comparison side by side, and then there's also some notes with some perspective and the last time they achieved those things, if they are noteworthy. So an awful lot on that blog. Just go to the blog section on the website, and you can dive into 
uh, many more of those numbers there for Tennessee football. That's Vince Ferrara with Jimmy Himes. I'm John Wilkerson. We'll get a break. More with Vince coming up. To join us, 656-9900. 656-9900 puts you on Sports Talk on 99.1, the sports animal. Continues with Jimmy Hyams. I'm John Wilkerson. Our guest, Vince Ferrara, to join us, 656-9900, 656-9900. Vince joins us on the Stanley Fence and Gates hotline. And, Vince, not only will you be looking into an undisclosed location off the West Coast as the site for the next uh, big Dana White event, but uh, what else is going to be on In the Cage tomorrow night? We are going to be talking a lot about the card for UFC 249 with all the island talk and the undisclosed location somewhere on planet earth to, uh, to <laughs> use the words of Dana White. Um, we've narrowed it down, I think a, a little bit, but, uh, but yeah, we'll be talking about the actual card because it, it's not the greatest card in the history of fight sports that he was kind of promoting it, that, that he was going to put together this, all-star type of, of card that's never been matched before. It's not quite to that level, but it's a really good and entertaining card with a lot of good entertaining fighters. So we're going to look through the stack card, spend some time on the main event uh, with Justin Gaethje, who's a very exciting go-forward fighter. He's opposing Tony Ferguson, who was in the main event before. So uh, a lot of that. And then Ovent St. Peru will join us tomorrow night as well. He's fighting a week from uh, after the UFC gets back going. Uh, he's uh, uh, fighting on the 25th of April, of course, the VFL. And, uh, and might even sneak in some football discussion with uh, with Ovince and what he thinks about all this, uh, this craziness and Dana White uh, putting uh, this card together and, and other cards as well and see what he knows. So that'll, that'll be fun tomorrow night from 8 until 9. And we always podcast it afterwards, but hope everyone checks it out on, on the radio. We're pretty proud of it. Vince, there was a, a group, the um, ringside physicians, saying that they do not feel that combat sports are safe. They want a suspension of that. Uh, what's your reaction to that? Well, I think a lot of it depends on the testing. Um, I, I haven't heard anyone specifically ask Dana White about the testing that he's planning. Are they testing mm-hmm. for fevers? Are they testing for colds, uh, or they do, in terms of just temperature, uh, or do they have their hands on COVID-19 testing? I, I haven't heard the specifics on what the what the testing will be. So, um, also a lot of these fighters are are not in big groups. Much of sports being shut down is the preventative because they're in large gatherings and, and arenas and a lot of teammates, things like that. You know, fighters are, are individual. They have teammates and coaches. But right now, those those fighters are all training and doing the same kind of thing that they will, will be doing on the, the pay-per-view. It's really not going to be that different. Now, maybe for some fighters, at, at some point, they're going to have to travel domestically to where uh, they might not be doing now. 
but the this idea that no one is touching anyone else and then suddenly they will on April 18th is incorrect. Fighters are still preparing. A lot of people are still doing their everyday jobs. You're just trying to take as many precautions as you can in your life to not put yourself in higher risk situations. So fighters are getting are still training and working, doing pad work, doing wrestling. They're still having contact and doing a lot of the things that they will be doing on the main event. It's just that they are changing those things, being careful during that process, and then they won't have an arena, an arena full of other people there. It's going to be an empty arena, and they're really not going to be exposed to any more different amounts of people than they are in their normal everyday training that still continues right now in their regular lives because the, this is work for them as professionals. So that's what I would say is it's not going to be any different than what they're doing now. However, I'd like to know what the form of testing is because we really haven't heard clarity on that. At least I have not. All right. I just uh, looked at your mock draft 1.0 for 2020. <laughs> I thought I went heavy on SEC players. You've got 18 of your 32 from the SEC. Uh, was there one in particular slot that you had perhaps the most trouble identifying who might draft whom? Well, I didn't intend to go that direction, Jimmy, with, with that heavy. But I think part of that is because I think that with the setup of having everyone be remote and separated with this draft and not having so much of the draft process be able to take place in having the pro days and, and the scouting and the medical and, and the face-to-face where you can tell guys' mannerisms, because of those things are – are taken away from a lot of the NFL people that really rely on that kind of stuff and not just on the college tape. And they did get to the combine, so they have some other post-college careers. But I think they're missing that chunk of information. And I think that we're going to see more of the Power 5 conference schools go in the first round. I think you're going to rely on the more known commodities, the schools that are going to send that the regularly send teams to the NFL, that coach, coaches and GMs can uh, can trust that have been right on their advice and opinions on players in the past. So I think that does favor, whether it's the SEC or the Big Ten, the Ohio States, the Clemsons, I think all of those schools and the Power Five schools uh, are going to benefit in the first round because of the lack of normal information. Now, to answer your question, Jimmy, I think it's Will West as New York Giants that kind of caused me the mm-hmm. biggest headache because I don't. I to me, an easy decision for them, even though they do need help on the offensive line. The easy pick for me would be Isaiah Simmons for them, from a safety from Clemson. But they don't do what everybody else thinks they should do. Uh, so I think that's where they're going to go offensive line, and then that's when it's going to push a lot of talented players down and you start to have this trickle-down effect. And we see that every year. Some one or two or three teams, somewhere in the top ten, they'll come in and either reach for a guy, the Giants, I and mean, many people thought the Giants had reached for Daniel Jones, and then you have these teams picking guys, the Raiders with uh, Cleveland Farrell, 
from Clemson. So now you have all these guys entering into the area where you thought all of these other guys would definitely go. Well, that pushes talent down. Now you're now you suddenly have guys that are there that you didn't expect to be there for a team. Maybe they end up having to go the best player available versus the clearly biggest need for them. So by knowing that that's what I think is going to happen and kind of working it through in my mind, that's when it kind of changed all the more natural pieces that might have been there in my mind going in. And and I think the draft is going to operate that way as well, where teams are going to see, oh, my goodness, I didn't think he was still going to be here. You know, you could have a scenario where the Panthers are deciding between Isaiah Simmons or Derek Brown, and who knows, maybe, uh, you know, Okuda from Ohio State is there unexpectedly. Now they have a decision, or they might have to think about trading out of it because somebody might want to go get someone they desperately want, and then they feel like if they can slide back, they can still get one of those players anyway or still get great value elsewhere. That domino effect, thanks to the Giants, is what really, I think, added the intrigue and made it more difficult for me to kind of play it out afterwards. Let's get a call from Mike. You're on Sports Talk. Hello, Mike. Hello, guys. Uh, I just want to talk about next year's the four top ten teams we play. Um, Okay. You know, Oklahoma, Florida, Georgia, Alabama, with with our offensive and defensive line and the depth and all, um, especially the Georgia game, that was I've been thinking about. You know, Georgia's supposed to have the top defense in the nation next year. We've got the top seven or eight defense. But, you know, when you look at the – you know, they're saying we don't – you know, we're probably going to lose that game, but – Guys, I think, you know, when Georgia's lost almost their entire offensive line mm-hmm. and we've got a three-deep defensive line, we can throw fresh people in on them. And then when Georgia, it's going to be exciting to see their defense going against our offensive line. That's going to be one smash-mouth time right there. They're going to have two of the best guards in the nation a uh, six-year senior center had two five-star tackles and three or four veteran offensive linemen going against them. And that's if Kate you don't Mays think we've eligible. got a chance? You don't think we've got a chance when our defense keeps throwing that at them and their offense is all, you know, their offensive line, you know, they're all new guys and everything, and they don't have the depth. And then we've got a senior kicker. They got a new kicker. You don't think we've got a chance against them when you got Cade Maves going back to Georgia, Wanya Morris going back to Georgia, and probably the best interior offensive line in the country going against their defense. That's going to be one heck of a game right there. Yeah, I don't, don't think, think anybody's saying that? Tennessee doesn't have a chance. Um, yeah. And, I, again, Cade Mays is not eligible yet. Um, they think, mm-hmm. Vince, that everything lines up for there to be an excellent opportunity for him to play this fall if, indeed, everything stays on schedule. Um, but you look at how well that, for the most part, Tennessee has competed against Georgia. Um, they were in the game in the second half the first time they met with Jeremy Pruitt as head coach, and and I think Tennessee had a, a better showing at this 
So I, I just wonder, this is, um, I, I just think Tennessee will have a chance, even though it will be on the road. Yeah, chance. Okay. No, no doubt. Uh, no doubt Tennessee has a chance. But I, I would caution on the, hey, they have new players, therefore they're not going to be as good. Tennessee's offensive line had two incoming freshmen that they had they were new a lot of other people in the league were probably saying oh look Tennessee they had new players they're they're not going to be as good on the line uh and they were improved they were new Georgia's got a couple of five stars on their offensive line as well they have two guys that aren't that weren't always starters but have started games for them in Cleveland and Sawyer on their offensive line so they had depth there so that's why guys they weren't started, weren't always able to play. So they, they're going to have – they've had a bunch of four stars plus a couple of those five stars I mentioned and Sawyer and Cleveland that have played. So I wouldn't just automatically assume that they won't be good. Plus Matt Luke is coaching. Matt Luke is a very good former head coach, very good offensive line coach. So I think they won't have a huge drop-off there. They, they will probably miss Cade Mays, but as John mentioned, we'll see whether he's going to be eligible or not. And then you mentioned the D-line, the three deep in numbers. I don't know that they have a star yet. Now, if they have a star develop and they have depth to bring you as well, I think then then we're, we're talking a little bit. But you're losing Taylor uh, as your, your by far best pass rusher that you had. He was an outside backer and, and, and sometimes a fourth D-lineman when he put his hand down. So Tennessee isn't exactly as doesn't exactly have difference makers there. We'll see if any of the new guys pan out or guys that didn't play last year. But I'm not I'm not ready to say three deep three deep in bodies. But I think for you to be at the top of the SEC in the SEC title game, win those kind of games, you need more difference makers. And that that we haven't seen that yet. Maybe it'll happen, but not I, I don't know that I would just throw it out there as oh we're great on the D line. They're not. So we should we should win. I wouldn't go that far. Quick thought, Jimmy. Yeah, I, I narrowed it down to this. In my opinion, Tennessee can hang with Georgia on the line of scrimmage. I haven't been able to say that lately, but I think that Tennessee can do that. So to me, it's going to get down to whichever team's quarterback plays the best. Is it going to be Garantano, whoever Tennessee's quarterback is, versus Jamie Newman, whoever Georgia's quarterback is? I think that's going to decide the outcome. Whichever quarterback plays the best, that team's going to win. Mike, good to hear from you. Hope uh, all is well. We'll get a break. A final segment with Vince Ferrara coming up as you listen to Sports Talk on 99.1, the sports animal. Not so much our job as it is our obsession. 99.1, the sports animal. Sports Talk, final segment with Vince Ferrara. Let's work in a call from Jay, who joins us. Hi, Jay. How are you? Hey, guys. Good afternoon. Hope you all are uh, Good staying afternoon. safe and healthy during this, this crazy time. Yes, um, sir. Hope the same for you. Guys, I, thanks, thanks, John. Um, guys, I, I have a question. I'd love to get you all thoughts about this for the future. Um, you know, I, I want sports back as much as anyone. Um it's how I make my living. I work in athletics, so uh, it's it's definitely you know important to me. But Kirk Herbstreit's comments really had me thinking. 
about uh, the future for this fall and even even possibly into the spring. And if we're practicing social distancing right now to to flatten the curve, as they say, which basically means slow the slow the rate of infection is all it means is we're trying to slow the rate of infection down. And then we go into fall with still no vaccine. How in the world do we not that? To me, if we go in playing sports, then are we not doing the exact opposite of social distancing? And with no vaccine at hand, I, it just seems pretty cut and dry to me that you can't go and play sports without that vaccine. Because you know what I'm saying? I just it doesn't seem logical to me. Is that too simple of a mind frame? Or, I mean, what do y'all think? Well, to me it is because we yeah. may have a vaccine by then. We don't know. Well, Jay, there's too many well, elements of the unknown. Let me finish. There are too many elements of the unknown for me to say we can't have football. So the answer to that to me is we don't know yet. But there are just too All many right, variables me, out there. Let me make it simple for you. If it's 12 to 18 months, no vaccine like they're saying, it's football played. If there's no vaccine, it's football played. I'd, probably not, but I've also seen where they're trying to expedite the vaccine. They're not going to wait 12 to 18 months to approve this from what I have heard and read. They're trying to expedite uh-huh. the vaccine. So we'll see. Vince, what do you think? I mean, I, I'm kind of with Jimmy on this. It, it depends. Everybody has their source of where they get information. You know, certain certain doctors or experts are on, and they'll say they anticipate this, and then another one will say something a little bit different. Some will give their opinions and estimate that, like like Myron Roll, they thought it, it would it would be difficult to play football this fall, where others have been more optimistic in the in the medical field. I, there are just so many unknowns uh, in when the vaccines come out, how they can do it. Football is going to be more difficult than, say, a baseball where they're talking about proposing and being in a bubble, get everyone tested once they're 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 negative and then keep them in the bubble. That's a little bit different than football uh, teams and playing other, other people and traveling in, even if it's an empty arena. So it, we just don't know. It, this is uncharted territory, and I, I just think there's so many differing opinions on it. We just have to wait to see how, how it plays out. Vince, uh, it's still worthwhise for folks to make 991thesportsanimal.com a daily visit, right? It is. Uh, tons of content, and we will have, we'll continue uh, busting out a bunch of interviews, video and audio interviews from here and blogs and uh, podcasts and obviously the uh, Draft Central page, which will have a ton of really cool content on the draft, plus everybody's mock drafts. John, yours, and several other staff members will have their mock drafts unveiled in the morning, so you make sure you check back in the morning to to, uh, to mock at John's uh, draft that is up there, and uh, be sure to tag so them on mock-able. Twitter and tell them what you think of it. <laughs> but, yeah, That's tons right. of content still uh, still there, and then uh, I think you guys played part one yesterday, interview with Tony Rassiopi. Uh If you guys don't catch the rest of it on this on the show, you can go back and watch both the audio and a video version of that. Jared Garantano's quarterback coach. Very interesting visit. Very interesting. And, Vince, we always appreciate it. The great thing is if folks mock my mock draft and then mock again, that makes my mock remockable. Uh, <laughs> have a great evening. We look forward to In the Cage tomorrow night, 8 o'clock, Vince, we always appreciate it. Thank you so much. All right, everybody stay safe. Thanks for the time. You as well. That's Vince Ferrara joining us on the Stanley Fence and Gates Hotline.